Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. If you've got your Bibles out, you can take them and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter. We're going to go through some verses in there today. I just want to talk to you about Jesus today. You know, there's so many ways that we can behold him and see him. Really, that's what this present move of God that's happening all over the earth is, is really about. It's about beholding Jesus. It's what makes it so special and so unique. It's not about beholding a person. It's not about a worship band, even a particular song or particular speaker. There's no celebrity attached to this thing. This is not something that was sparked by an individual. This is hungry hearts moving toward the things of God, turning and shifting their gaze and their focus to an awareness of the presence of Jesus, to behold him, to see him as he truly is. And that is to let all of our preconceived notions be stripped away. It's, it's as radical as it must have been for the first century Jews to encounter Jesus, who had come out of 1,300 years of tradition of knowing what God was like, what he was capable of, and what he would do. And then Jesus appears on the scene, and he completely challenges their perspective of who God is his character, his nature, what he's like. They could see God as other or holy. And to bring him into earthly terms was not religiously acceptable at all. But the closest that they could come to bringing him to any earthly term that we could understand with our mind was king, to see him in a place of majesty, rulership, authority, and power high and lifted up, seated on a throne. Isaiah saw this in Isaiah chapter 6, and you can see then that now we had a, a, a perspective of God that seemed to be relatable to man. Well, if he's a king, then what does that make us? What well, makes us his servants or subjects? And hopefully this king is benevolent, Hopefully this king doesn't say off with their heads or cast us out. And so we approach this king in lowliness and with worship and adoration. We have this idea that this king is appeased by our sacrifices. I mean, after, after all, that's the way this covenant played out, isn't it? And the only way we have any relationship with this king at all is, is through the old Mosaic covenant. Of course, to them, it wasn't an old covenant. It was the only covenant, the only covenant that really mattered, uh, the one given to Moses, the law. And according to the law, uh, sin had to be paid for by sacrifice. It wasn't that God wanted sacrifice. He never wanted anybody to sin in the first place. never wanted there to be distance and separation between him and people. And so when sin happens, though, to illustrate the awfulness of it, to illustrate the offensiveness of it, there has to be something of innocence that dies in blood to show us what it would possibly take to atone for sin. And that's the idea here, is that sin is innocence dying in violence. It's it's the rejection of communion or union with God. Sin wasn't something God brought into the world. 
He gave us the choice to accept or reject, to listen to or to not listen to his voice, to have relationship with him or to live life as if we were our own maker, to live life as if we created ourselves. That's why it's so important to hear the words of the psalmist that says, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. With those traditions, it's no wonder why people approached God, even though they could relate to him as a king, but with a sense of fear, because hopefully today this king was benevolent and hopefully our sacrifice was enough. You know, after a while, Israel got so used to sacrificing and getting away with sin through the legal loophole of sacrificing that sacrifice became a business. That's why Jesus goes into the temple and he sees the money changers. And what are they doing? They're selling sacrifice. Now you don't have to do anything but simply pay some coins, some money for a sacrifice, a couple of doves here, a goat there. And and next thing you know, you have found a way to appease God and at the same time live with no sense of obedience to his voice or surrender to his ways. Man had finally come up with a way to be independent of God and yet find the legal loophole for getting away with whatever we wanted to do in our independence. Jesus goes into the temple one day and he sees it and he flips the tables and says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves when it's supposed to be a house of prayer. In other words, it's a place of communion. But all you're doing with this is you're turning it into a religious system, a way of living unto yourselves. Isn't that what we still struggle with today? The idea of how can I possibly be right with God, but be independent of him? To not have an actual relationship with him. Well, thankfully, I think the pendulum is changing and is swinging in another direction today as people's hearts are being turned back toward the things of God. He's our only hope, honestly. He is the hope for the world, the hope for the nations, the hope for humanity, the only hope there is. All other hopes are a temporary band-aid, a, a, a distraction of temporal entertainment to get our eyes off of the authentic and real issue, and that is Jesus Christ holds all things together. In him all things consist, and he holds all things together. So as you and I come to a realization that when we approach God, we are not approaching him in the way the old covenant people did. Why? Because we have Jesus as an example. And what did he come and do? He changed the entire system of how to approach God. Jesus shows up and to to him, though God is holy, God is Father. He is relating to God, not as a king, but as a father. 
And he's doing this on our behalf. Why? Because we don't know that Jesus is God. We don't know he's the son of God, except that he relates to God as father. So then we would look at him and think, hmm, if he's calling God his father, then he thinks he's God's son. And to people who only knew God as a king, as a holy king, sometimes benevolent and other times not, to to those people, Jesus would be an offense. For to call God Father is to make yourself his son. And Jesus is teaching us to do the exact same thing. To relate to God not as merely a king making us peasants, but to relate to him as father. That's why it's so radical to read the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. that says, We have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of bondage again to fear is the system that, that Paul had come out of. It was the law. You're bound to a system that requires you to fear God only. And that's all you have to have. Love for God? No, that's not the point. It's fearing God. And that's why you kill innocent animals to appease the wrath of this one who is requiring the death of an innocent in blood to pay for the sin of our will, the sin of, of our actions, the sin of our rejection. But what does God do? In Romans chapter 8, he says, uh, Paul says, we haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear. No, there's a new relationship with God we have because of the, the Christic covenant, the new covenant in Christ. He says, we have received the spirit of adoption. Adoption, that means that we're in a family and we're chosen to be in this family. And because of this spirit of adoption we've received, you and I, have the right to call God Father. Paul puts it like this. We have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, from the depth of our being, from a place of love, from a passionate place of, I have nothing without you and I am lost and alone without you. We break off the orphan, mentality, the orphan spirit, that orphan perspective by crying out, Abba, Father. An orphan could never say Abba, let alone cry out Abba. And it's the, the lungs of a son, of a daughter that releases out this phrase, Daddy, Abba, Father. That's what Abba means. It's a term for Daddy, it's Papa, it's it's I belong to you, not just as a servant in your kingdom, not just as a slave in your house. I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I am a part of this family. I've received with that a new name, a new identity. I think that's why it's so important for us to see ourselves as adopted, because See, in an adoption situation, you moved from one family to another. Uh, my dear friend George Banoff says, we used to be an Adams family, the ugly Adams family. 
<laughs> Remember that old TV show, The Adams Family? And now the theme song is stuck in your head, right? Da -da -da -da. Yeah, that one. And he says, we've moved from Adam's family into the family of God. You have changed now families. And with that change in families, what have you done? You've changed names. You've changed identities. You've changed residence. You've gone from old things which have passed away to new things. And all things, the Bible says, have become new. I want to take you into a bit of a study on how we find this, this newness. You know, our perspective, even as sons and daughters of sin, often comes from an old covenant perspective. And you might have seen the definition of sin as what's been preached for many, many years, and that's simply missing the mark. So we think of sin as breaking God's commandments through lousy behavior, things we do to disappoint God. And when we do those things, and we know we've done those things, what ends up happening is we find ourselves under judgment, condemnation, more than likely by the people around us, but most of all by us, because we ourselves know that we purposely, intentionally made the choice to do or not to do something. We did the things we shouldn't do, or we didn't do the things we should do. We knew it was wrong, and it gives us a sense of judgment, which brings guilt and shame. And no matter how far we follow that trail of guilt down and even try to repent as much as we possibly can, we find ourselves lacking, in a sense, when it comes to a revelation of a clean heart. Because if we're the ones responsible for the sin, then we have to be the ones responsible to clean it up, to get ourselves out of it. And the problem is, is we never know whether we've done it enough. You know, in the word, uh, the, the Greek word sin is the word hamartia, which does literally mean to miss the mark or a fault, a failure, or a sinful deed. But it's more than just what we do. See, historically, in, in the church and the body of Christ, we've understood sin to be the state of our being. It's not just what we do. It's actually kind of who we are. So there is an understanding of sin that is tied to our action. But then there is a, an understanding of sin that is an actual state of our very being. And so it's often said that the actions that we do come from that state of being. And so then if we are still acting in a sinful manner, then we must at the core of ourselves still be sinful. And listen, that is a problem. So I want to draw a line between the things that we do that would be sins and the state of our being, which is a condition of sin. Now, if we have the ability to do something does it always mean that it points back to a condition that hasn't been dealt with? Well, a lot of people have come to Christ and they've given their lives to Jesus, said, Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to live holy unto you. And yet still they find themselves facing temptation. 
Now that's a problem because sometimes perhaps in moments of weakness, even as a child of God, uh, you've received that spirit of adoption, you might find yourself willing to actually walk in a way that you know is wrong on occasion. And so then we go, oh my goodness, did I really get quote unquote saved? Did Jesus really redeem me? And so now we take the work of the cross and we put it back onto ourselves again because Jesus clearly didn't change me. And so uh, because I'm still, I'm still occasionally sinning, I'm still getting tempted and I'm still beset by weakness. So therefore, I have to repent and get saved all over again. I think a lot of people think this. And so you find yourself taking 100% responsibility for your own Christian condition or saved condition. And here's the deal. If Jesus Christ has saved you, has set you free, do you have the ability to still make a wrong choice? Yes. Might you still even want to, on occasion, make a wrong choice? Entirely possible. That's why 1 John 1, 9 was written. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He was writing that to the church, by the way. He was writing that to Christians, not unbelievers, not people who don't know Jesus. He's talking about Christians. And what he's saying there is when we find ourselves in a condition of falling prey to temptation and actually choosing things that are wrong, even as a child of God, that what we need to do is break the lie that we are not children of God, not sons and daughters, and come back to the Father. It's not running away from our Heavenly Father. It's actually going to Him. Why? Because He's really the only one that can make it right. And affirming through His voice and His Holy Spirit our condition of righteousness purely by His grace. Now, when we break the lie... We see that line broken, that we are not his children anymore, that we are not worthy to be called his sons and daughters. Then what increases in our heart is love and a gratitude. And that love and gratitude is actually what fuels a holy life. And I preach this a thousand different ways. Let me just give it to you another way today. We don't live holy to please God. We live holy because he is already pleased with us. Because of what Jesus did, we are already accepted. We are already loved. And so our holy living is in response to what he's done. Let me go ahead and read for you out of John chapter 13 and verse, I want to start in verse 1. And I want to read it like this. Just, let me just read a, a, some scriptures out of here, not the entire passage, but I want to just show you something really, really important. It says this, It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And verse 3 through 8, I want you to read here with me. It says, He got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, 
drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not understand now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And why in the world would Peter have said, no, you shall never wash my feet? Probably for the same reason that we find ourselves taking personal responsibility for our condition to clean up our own act. Now, listen, I'm not downing on personal responsibility. It's in short supply on the earth today. And we certainly need to take personal responsibility for our own actions, especially the ones that cause pain to someone else. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our holiness and our righteousness, let's just put aside for a moment relationships with people. When it comes to people who can't save you, you're just talking about relationships, salvaging the relationship. When you cause pain or severance in a relationship, you go to that person. You make it right. You take personal responsibility. 1 John 1, nine is us taking the necessary personal responsibility to God. But you understand, confessing your sins doesn't do anything but make yourself transparent and vulnerable before God. It's not the confession that cleans you. It says that He forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And this is what Jesus is illustrating here to Peter, who wants to take full responsibility, like every good Jew would, for their own salvation. In other words, give me something to sacrifice, or let me put it in our, our terms today, what must I do to be saved? What do I do? What is the thing that I have responsibility to do. You know, when the Philippian jailer asked that uh, of, of, uh, of Paul and Silas, he said, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in Jesus. In other words, 100% let Jesus do the work. See, to believe is just to think to be true. And to think to be true is, what, what do I think to be true? It means I've got to trust that what he did was sufficient. Now, was he about to do it for the Philippian jailer? No, he did it on the cross for the Philippian jailer at the same time he did it for Paul, at the same time he did it for you, at the same time he did it for me. That is to put all of our trust in this simple reality, and that is that the cross did it all, paid it all. And what was Jesus doing on the cross? He's illustrating here in this foot washing ceremony what the cross was going to accomplish. That in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he becomes what no sacrifice could ever be. The perfect sacrifice. And he offers it himself. It's not the priest offering the sacrifice. He's the great high priest. He's doing the work. And on top of that, he is the king seated on the throne who is also your father receiving the sacrifice. So when Peter here says, you'll never wash my feet, 
Jesus counters that, not by saying, well done, Peter, way to take personal responsibility for your sin. No, no, no. Jesus comes back at him and he says this, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Being washed is a big deal. Being cleansed is a big deal. But understand this simple truth. You can't cleanse yourself. You can't wash yourself. You can't save yourself. See, it's not whether or not we're washed. It's who does the washing. And if we try to do it ourselves, it doesn't work. It doesn't take. See, the only way that you and I can be saved is to put our faith and trust in Jesus. And salvation that results in newness of life can only be lived out by continuing to put your trust in Jesus. At no time in our life of communion with God do we take the damp rag out of his hand to wash ourselves. We don't take the work away from him. See, when Jesus said in John 20, 23, he says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. He was giving us the ability to illustrate the ministry of reconciliation. And that is when it comes to receiving grace and salvation, we have to put ourselves 100% in a position of receiving from another. I think it's one of the reasons why receiving communion is, is such a big deal, that you take and receive it from someone else. Our Catholic brothers and sisters and Orthodox brothers and sisters understand this. They don't take communion themselves. No, they kneel before a priest, a mediator, and they receive communion from the hand of another. And why in the world do they do that? Does it put a lot of power in the priest's hands? No, it's a living illustration of this, that when it comes to communion that results in salvation, our union and our communion is the work of receiving, and he is the giver. When we have received What does Jesus say? Freely you've received, now freely give. We live our lives of giving grace as a living illustration of the grace that's been given to us. Now, if we believe that we get saved by our own works, then we will require the work of another in order to prove that that they're actually in Christ. In other words, we're going to look at everything about their life to determine whether or not they're in or whether or not they're out. You know, if you can trust in the grace of God to save you in spite of yourself, can you trust in the grace of God to save another in spite of themselves? And if they receive the grace you give them, it's a testimony to a heart that is open to receiving grace from another. And that is the condition by which we are saved, a heart open to receive grace from another. Jesus, following this foot washing ceremony, says, we've got to go and do the same to others as well. See, in that way, we become identified with our Heavenly Father. But if you don't believe that you've been forgiven, then you won't feel worthy to give grace away to someone else. I am only righteous, pure, holy, and clean because of Jesus. It's not my own actions at all. 
There's nothing righteous, holy, pure, or clean about my actions. Now, in my flesh, I can't do any good thing. Christ in you, the hope of glory, puts on display the reality that unless he washes you, you have no part of him. And this is why sin doesn't have to rule your life anymore. Because Jesus Christ has set you free. He sets you free today. And he will continue to set you free. The freedom never stops. It's why his mercy endures. To receive the grace of Jesus Christ is just simply to say, Jesus, I receive what you've done. I believe that you are my Lord, my Savior. And now I surrender to listen to your voice. And you know what he'll do? He'll empower you to love others like he loves you. And that's what it means to let him come into and change your life. It'll affirm the righteousness of God as the inheritance that you and I carry in Christ. And you'll turn around and give it away to other people. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I pray today that you receive that grace and that goodness just to behold him. Just another way of seeing him through the new covenant lens clearer and clearer every day. May you see yourself through that lens as well is clean and is holy because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And may by faith you receive that grace today and forevermore. Listen, you can write to us here at Faith Mountain Ministries by writing to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. To support this ministry, you can go to VanderbushMinistries.com. That's VanderbushMinistries.com. And just click on that button, the Give button on the home page. And that's the quickest and best way that you can support the ministry. To listen to this again, go to BillVanderbush.com. And there's a few different podcasts and a number of different resources that are on there. Highly recommend for you the Ephesians resource. The Ephesians resource is a verse-by-verse study through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. One of the most powerful studies you can do is to walk through this letter and discover just how redeemed and in Christ you are because of what he did. Hey, this is Bill Vanderbush. Thanks so much for listening today. Until next time, may the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.